Hey, everybody. Thank you for returning for another episode of the Mark Geis Show. Uh, so I've been on a little bit of a hiatus here. The last few weeks have been extremely busy for me. I One weekend, I went to my sister's college graduation. Uh, my parents came to North Dakota for the first time to, to visit us out here. We're here for the, the whole long weekend. And uh, I also met up with some of my best friends down in Richmond for a weekend. And one of them was with me for most of the week. So I have, I really didn't have much of an opportunity to do a show. You know, I was on the road for most of that three week or so time period. I think it's been about three weeks since I've done a show. And then my weekends have been just completely busy. And this week was kind of catching up on a, on a lot of different things. I've also been trying to put more time into writing my book on the, the higher education bubble, the student loan crisis. So that's an important project for me, and I really want to get that done by the end of the year. So the spare time I have had, I've been putting toward that. But a lot is obviously happening, and I need to put out at least a show or two here because there are some stories I've been following pretty closely and that I think we're not hearing enough about in, um, in general media. And the story I want to focus on for this episode is the Ross Ulbricht uh, Silk Road story. So if you haven't heard about this, it, it wasn't heavily reported on, but the Silk Road was an online marketplace, basically basically an Amazon for primarily illegal goods. So a lot of drugs were sold on there, um, false documents, hacking software, anything you can think of. And there are a lot of copycats like this today, but, the, but Albrecht... He was the creator of this site, and it operated on Tor, the Onion Router, which is basically a browser that uh, makes it difficult to, to track your activity to a particular uh, to a particular IP address. So it makes it easier to, to mask what you're doing. It's not perfect, and it is somewhat traceable, but. Um, Tor makes it significantly harder. I'm not an expert on these things either, so um, if I'm not doing a fantastic job of verbalizing it, you can go out there and there's there are plenty of resources that do a great job of explaining. I'm going to try to include some of the some of those uh, resources in the suggested readings referenced articles portion of the website post for this episode. Uh, but so it used Tor, and uh, and all transactions were conducted in Bitcoin. I'm going to talk about Bitcoin more later because I want to talk about the big run-up in price and what I think about Bitcoin. I know I've talked about it in the past, but just the, the meteoric rise that it's gone on. So I think these two topics go together pretty well here. But Ulbricht set up this uh, this site, Silk Road. There are now, like I said, a lot of si- very similar and more evolved marketplaces like this on Tor. And they're easy to access. I've never bought anything on them, but I have viewed them interesting to see what's available out there what the prices are uh and so basically you could go and there's a there's a peer review system much like you have on ebay or on amazon where you give a certain number of stars and and you say how the transaction was how the how the product was that you bought and it really self-regulated itself that way he also Ulbricht, the creator he was heavy into, into libertarian philosophy, very, uh, very into Ludwig von Mises, uh, into Ayn Rand, and this is really a libertarian project is how he described it. So that was one of the things that 
made me really interested in Albrecht in the first place. And he's a, a very interesting character. But basically there was an investigation. He was caught and he was sentenced to life in prison. So he first developed this site in, I think he started in 2010 and then really completed it in 2011. And he had been running a, uh, a used bookstore, an online used bookstore with his, I think it was his girlfriend at the time or an ex-girlfriend. Uh, and this began as a side project for him. But then he, uh, it, it basically turned into a huge moneymaker. He made millions of dollars off of facilitating these transactions and it became really popular and sparked copycats and, and competitors. I think it's a, it's a brilliant idea and there's no way that it's ever going to be stopped if you look at how many marketplaces there are out there now. But basically what the government wanted to do, they wanted to, to make an example out of Ulbricht. So despite him, he wasn't being convicted of, of selling drugs himself or of buying drugs himself, but it was all for facilitating these transactions. And he was charged with distribution and aiding and abetting distribution of narcotics uh, conspiracy to distribute narcotics, using the internet to distribute nar- narcotics, engaging in a continuing c- criminal enterprise, conspiring to obtain unauthorized access to a computer for purposes of commercial advantage and private financial gain, and in furtherance of other criminal and tortious acts, conspiring to traffic and fraudulent identification documents, and conspiring to launder money. So he's convicted of all of these charges, of these seven charges. They're also... And they, and they brought it up in the case a lot that he had tried to pay to have somebody murdered. And there are chat logs that, that show this. Uh, but this was, he, he was never convicted of this charge. And uh, that's not what this case was about. So these are all nonviolent crimes. And he was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. And why this is news now, so that was in February 2015 when he was originally convicted by jury uh, on May 31st the appellate court ruled that it was going to uphold the sentence so that's why it was back in the news again and I obviously didn't have this podcast going back in February of 2015 so it gave me a good opportunity to talk about this but I love how I love how this has backfired really on on the government, on, on people trying to prevent these voluntary transactions from taking place. When they originally caught Dread Pirate Roberts, which was uh, Ulbricht's pseudonym, when they originally caught him, another Silk Road, Silk Road 2.0, popped up, and somebody, again, using the, the Dread Pirate Roberts pseudonym, and traffic to this site was more than, than what traffic on the old Silk Road had been. And it's continued to grow to the point where, by the way, I'm sorry if you can hear sounds in the background, dog barking. Um, I'm doing this from my kitchen table because my quote-unquote desk, which is one of those long folding tables, uh, my wife took it to a party yesterday and she's actually going to pick it up now. I didn't have a table in my area, in my studio, if you want to call it. It's our extra bedroom. Uh to do this. So I'm doing it at the kitchen table. And if I had the door closed to the outside, I would be boiling in here right now because it's in the, the high eighties right now, temperature wise. So any sounds in the background, I apologize for that, but I'm sure you can bear with me. Usually it's not too bad out there. Um, but back to what I was saying before. So uh, immediately there was a backlash 
and basically the news coming out of this conviction, I think, woke a lot of people up to the to the fact that th- that this was out there, that a site like this existed, where instead of because a lot of people do use drugs and they typically do it, the traditional way to do it is you find a connection. You've got to either go to somebody's house that you don't know. A lot of times they're involved in other criminal things that, so you don't really know what you're walking into necessarily or who you're meeting up with to buy drugs. And I think this scares a lot of people or they prefer not to do it. Some people, they, you know, they calculate the, the risk versus reward and they're still doing it because the reward to them of getting the drugs that they want to do is worth that extra effort, if you want to say, or that extra trouble of, of being in that awkward or unknown situation. But doing this, being able to buy drugs or, you know, whatever your vice is on the internet and have it mailed to you takes that out of the equation. And there's also far more accountability because there's this peer review system. So you can see what other people's experience has been. And you see this with other websites like, like eBay and Amazon, how powerful peer reviews are. And it's, it's far more powerful than any sort of, you know, regulatory agency could be. I know I'm talking about drugs here, but any product, you know, if you had like an FDA for electronics or something, I don't know, I'm just using that as an example, uh, or clothing, they could not do what peer review could do. Because you can see it so quickly, it's in real time, you know, as people order it, they're leaving their reviews and you're able to see how other people have reviewed this particular product. And that's far more powerful than any regulatory agency can be. So this really was a, a revolutionary idea. And it's obvious that that Albrecht had an entrepreneurial mind. He was a very smart guy. He had a degree in physics, master's degree in physics, I believe. I know his undergraduate degree was in physics. Uh, actually, his master's degree was in uh, material science and engineering. But obviously a smart guy with this entrepreneurial mind. And now you have him rotting away in prison for the rest of his life, being convicted of nonviolent crimes for facilitating voluntary transactions. And one of the interesting things from the opinion, so I'm, I'm going to read directly from the opinion, the, the appellate court's opinion, but it talks about drug policy. And I think can be read as being critical of, of drug policy in the United States. So this will be kind of a long quote here. I'm, I'm going to link to the entire opinion if you want to read it. There's a lot of interesting content in here, but this is close to the end. Quote, that discussion was particularly germane to this case for several reasons. First, Ulbricht claimed that Silk Road reduced the harms associated with the drug trade in several ways. For example, he argued that trafficking in drugs over the internet reduced violence associated with hand-to-hand transactions and the societal stigma of drug use. And Silk Road's vendor rating system ensured that customers had access to better quality drugs and more information about the drugs that they were purchasing. Those arguments prompted the district court to reflect broadly on the cost of the drug trade and discuss Silk Road's participation in those harms. Reasonable people may and do disagree about the social utility of harsh sentences for the distribution of controlled substances or even of criminal prohibition of their sale and use at all. It is very possible that at some future point we will come to regard these policies as tragic mistakes and adopt less punitive and more effective methods of reducing the incidence and costs of drug abuse. At this point in our history, however, the democratically elected representatives of the people have opted for a policy of prohibition backed by severe punishment. That policy results in the routine incarceration of many traffickers for extended periods of time. 
This case involves a defendant who stood at one remove from the trade, who did not for the most part dirty his hands with the actual possession and sale of drugs and other contraband that his site offered. But he did take a cut of the proceeds in exchange for making it easier for such drugs to be purchased and sold in a way that may well have expanded the market by allowing more people access to drugs in greater quantities than might otherwise have been available to them. In the routine instances of sentencing drug sellers, the dangerous aspects of the trade are close to the surface and require little emphasis. In this case, a reminder of the consequences of facilita facilitating such transactions was perhaps more necessary, particularly because Ulbricht claimed that his site actually made the drug trade safer and he appeared to contest the legitimacy of the laws he violated. Finally, we need look no further than the district court's express reasons for imposing sentence to conclude that drug-related deaths played little part in dictating the sentence imposed. As tragic as they are and as foreseeable in light of the volumes of dangerous drugs trafficked through Silk Road, those deaths were accidents. In light of the overwhelming evidence discussed below that Ulbricht was prepared, like other drug kingpins, to protect his profits by paying large sums of money to have individuals who threatened his enterprise murdered, it would be plainly wrong to conclude that he was sentenced for accidental deaths that the district court discussed only in passing in imposing sentence. Even were we to conclude that the evidence of the Silk Road-related deaths should not have been received, any error would be harmless because the record is absolutely clear that the district court, after finding that Ulbricht commissioned five murders, would have imposed the same sentence if the evidence of the drug-related deaths had been excluded. End quote. So what they're talking about, drug-related deaths, how that how that all came up was earlier. I didn't want to read way too much. I didn't want to read five pages of this, but before Ulbricht had contended that the district court should not have brought in evidence of people dying from drugs that they purchased via Silk Road. So what the court here is saying in the opinion is that it wasn't actually used in the sentencing and it was, it was brought into the fold because they were just bringing information to light. But I think it still does, it influences the jury in a certain way. You're bringing these, these in, and I, I uh, watched a 60 Minutes thing from Australia. I believe it's still called 60 Minutes there. It has the same setup and everything. But they were using deaths of uh, people like jumping off of balconies because they were taking acid that they, that they bought off of Silk Road. And they're basically trying to say that Silk Road is at fault for uh, for these things. It was it, it was used to uh, to criticize Silk Road. But back to the opinion, what I read there, I think that you can read that as being pretty critical of drug policy in the United States. And I am obviously very critical of it. I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that this is a you know not just a waste of resources, not just a waste of tax dollars, but it's ruined so many people's lives being incarcerated for nonviolent crimes. And it's brought people who otherwise would just be, they just want to purchase something that they're going to ingest themselves in a, a voluntary transaction in a nonviolent transaction. It brings a lot of those people into the criminal world where they need to arm themselves. They need to use violence like Ulbricht did. If he indeed did commission these murders, though the murders didn't happen, but, um, that's basically what Ulbricht was doing. It's because he couldn't risk somebody going in and ratting to the feds, which is what he thought was going to happen. But if there wasn't that threat of the feds coming in and doing what they did and, and imprisoning him for life and shutting down the site, then he would not have been commissioning murders. This would have been done above board and, uh, and that never would have happened. So 
this is just a really interesting story because it, it, it brings in talking about the war on drugs, which is something that I think people on a lot of different parts of the spectrum can get on board with, can get on board with criticizing the war on drugs. Um, you know, whether you're, you know, whether you're a, a socialist or whether you're an anarcho-capitalist, you know, at the complete opposite ends of the spectrum, you can probably come to some agreement. You know, maybe your reasoning on how the problem should be solved or what's causing the pro- causing the problem may be a little different. But I think a lot of people can come together and talk about this. That, that's one of my favorite topics to talk about with progressives because I think we can find common ground there. Um, then you can use it logically too in in other arguments as well. But I'm I'm not gonna <laughs> go deeper into that. Even perhaps more importantly though this story forces you to think about anonymity on the internet and what the future of transactions will be and what the internet enables you to do. And this is something that governments are not going to be able to stop. You see that they they put Ulbricht in prison for life and they were trying to send a message to people who wanted to do something like this, who wanted to facilitate transactions of illegal goods on the internet say that if you're caught, you were going to be punished harshly. But it didn't deter people, and now you have all these sites up and running, and they're more de- they're more decentralized than ever. They're getting more and more decentralized, and there's not one Ross Ulbricht at the center of each of these sites. So not only do you have a whole lot of different sites, but there's not one person running them. They've they've decentralized the operations and the leadership to the point where you can't just go after one person and shut down the site. You can maybe find some people who are involved with the site. Maybe you can get lucky and shut one site down, but these are going to be out there and there is nothing that governments can do about it. And I expect them to continue to try to fight it, to continue to try to fight this unwinnable war against people using the anonymity of the internet to facilitate transactions. If people want to buy something, they're going to figure out an easy way to buy those things. And for a long time, the easiest way to buy drugs was to to find somebody who was selling them and meet with that person in person. But now a lot of people have woken up to, well, you know, now I never have to meet the person that I'm buying these drugs from. I can get reviews from other users on these drugs. So I know what I'm buying. I know the the purity and the strength of, of whatever I'm buying and I can have it delivered to my doorstep. So I never have to get directly involved I, you know, I don't have to show up with a gun in my pocket in case things go wrong or, or you know, whatever you may have to do to prepare for a, a drug transaction. I'm talking more, you know, something like that would be if you're trafficking large amounts of drugs, buying large amounts of, of hard drugs, which you can buy through these sites. Uh, but the question that governments are going to have to ask themselves, are we going to continue to try to fight people buying what they want to buy using the anonymity of the internet, using the latest technology, are we just going to admit that we can't do anything about this? And you know, I don't think government should be doing anything about it. I think that if you want to buy something from somebody else, it's a voluntary transaction, and it's something that's not harming other people, so something like drugs, it should not be illegal. There should not be somebody standing in your way. And we've seen all the ways that this is, has ruined lives and brought people into criminal activities that otherwise would not have been criminals it's ruined people's lives by putting them in prison it's cost a lot of money taxpayers having to pay for all these people to be in prison most of them on drug-related crimes Um, so it's been a disaster overall 
And the more that they fight it, the more that they tr try to impose punitive sentences to try to deter others, all that you're going to see is these things made more, more and more decentralized. And that's exactly what's happening with these marketplaces on tour. And they're not going anywhere. There is nothing that, that, that you can do about it. And that's one of the great things. I think that technology and this, th this rapidly evolving technology, because it really is exponential how, how things develop, it's really directly challenging a lot of these things that libertarians in general have criticized about the government getting too involved in things. So I, you know, another similar thing is uh, public education. And I just read Ron Paul's uh, School Revolution. And in that he discusses how he thinks that you're not going to change the funding of public schools at this time. You're not going to be able to do that through politics. So what you really have to do is you have to compete with the public schools. And he thinks the best way to do this is through the internet. And the internet is making it cheaper and cheaper to buy homeschool curriculums. It's making it easier to, to do homeschooling. Parents don't have to know everything. They don't have to be teachers. And they don't have to worry that maybe my kids are, are losing out because they're not, they're not being taught by an actual teacher. But you're having now where one really good teacher could be teaching thousands and thousands of kids. You know, you can sell this curriculum and it can be viewed from anywhere. You can do it at your own pace. You know, you don't have to be in person there with a teacher. And this one teacher, that's really good, rather than only being able to teach 30 kids in the classroom, now can teach these thousands of kids through the internet. And the marginal cost is very low. So that means that you can sell this for a lower and lower price. Um, <clears throat> but... I think he's right when he says that it's very difficult politically to take on how public schools are funded. So I always talk about more local control and, and the federal government taking control of something like education has been a disaster and it's caused our education system to deteriorate. And so I don't, I don't want the federal government funding public education. But at this point, so many people in the education establishment have a vested interest in things staying that way, that you're not going to do it by electing politicians to change the rules or change the way things are funded. I, I think we're past that point and it's so difficult to achieve anything politically that way. So you kind of have to starve the beast by taking away its customers. And so as, as public school continues to deterior, deteriorate and as homeschooling gets cheaper and cheaper and better, you know, as, as more people enter the field, as more uh, businesses enter the field, Prices will continue to come down. Quality will go up. It makes it that much more attractive to people to take their kids out of out of uh, public education, out of public schools, and to homeschool them. And I think he's completely right there that eventually there would come a point where public schools would have to reevaluate what they're doing. And he uses the post office as an, as an example a lot and what FedEx and UPS have been able to do and, and the Internet with email and uh, the way that we can communicate instantly on the internet without having to send letters through the mail, it's really made the post office obsolete in, in most cases. And they continue to hemorrhage money um, and public schools very well could go the same route. But that's something like the Silk Road and technology. I know that Silk Road was the first one that did it. I'm using that kind of to represent all of these online marketplaces. I think eventually... Enough people are going to realize that this can't be stopped. We have to accept that people are going to, people are going to find a way to facilitate 
voluntary transactions. They're going to find a way to buy what they want to buy, and governments are powerless to stop it. Um, and so that's what's so great about technology and why the internet has to go hand in hand with really any discussion we have to solve a lot of these problems of overreach by the government. And I think it's also a big reason why a lot of libertarian-minded people are very into technology. Um, you see a lot of people, they're not, they're not computer people, and I, I count myself in that camp. I don't know a ton about computers, but they understand the power of it, and they understand the, the value of that knowledge, and, and, and they can, you can commission that expertise from people who do really know what they're doing, but you can realize this is a way that I can address an issue that I see out there, a hole that needs to be filled, and the internet is a great way to facilitate those things. And one of the major ways <clears throat> that the internet can be used to uh, to halt or to, to thwart increased federal control is through money. And that's why I want to talk about Bitcoin more. I said earlier in the episode I wanted to expand on this a little bit because of the huge run-up in price we've seen with Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is just one of many competing cryptocurrencies out there. And these are not subject to central bank manipulation. Um, and I think it's a, I think it is the way of the future. My problem with Bitcoin, and if you're, if you're betting everything on Bitcoin, is like I said, that's just one of many competing cryptocurrencies. And you really don't know if in this cryptocurrency world, if another one is going to overtake it. And it's so expensive right now that I wouldn't want to have all my eggs in that basket. So the way that I'd want to, if you're looking to invest in cryptocurrencies, I wouldn't necessarily want to just buy this Bitcoin run up. And I think there, there will be declines in prices coming. I think you see this run up and I've seen some articles out there talking about how the path to early retirement is, is just plow a bunch of money into Bitcoin and forget about it and leave it there and you'll be rich in five or 10 years. And it sounds a lot to me like the dot-com boom, where it was like anything with dot-com in it, throw your money there. Look, they're all, they're all going up like crazy. The, and you're bound to be rich if you uh, if you throw all your money into the next hot internet stock. And obviously, we saw how that ended. If you if you bet on that and you and you stuck with it over time, I mean, internet companies have gotten large, but um, it wasn't it, it wasn't the right move to be buying all these companies with basically no revenue and generating huge net losses every year yet their valuations were sky high. Uh, so I wouldn't want to be betting on this uh, this bid up in prices here. If you're trying to trade Bitcoin, like if you're just looking at it, trying to make a quick buck, I'd be very wary right now of pawing my money into Bitcoin. But I do think that the cryptocurrency market as a whole is only going to get larger and larger. And I'm attracted to cryptocurrencies and buying a basket of those currencies. And I think other people are there because they're having some things developed like this. And the, probably the best that I have found, I have not invested in this yet. So, um, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but I have done research on it. it it's available on the, uh, the BitShares open ledger and it's called Bit20. And basically what it does, it, it rebalances every month, I believe. And it has 
15 or so 15 or 20 of the of the top uh, of the top coins out there the top cryptocurrencies out there so you have exposure to the market as a whole but you're not putting all your all your eggs in just the bitcoin or just the ethereum baskets so you've got broad exposure and you're betting on that market as a whole to get larger and i think that's where i'd want to be right now like i said i've not invested in this so um i don't have my money where my mouth is right now but i think having some of your assets exposed and it can be a small you know one percent of your assets or something like that exposed to the cryptocurrency market i think it's smart because there is huge upside potential here and i think that you're seeing cryptocurrencies gain more and more momentum and all it really needs is some huge figure to really endorse it you know say say a warren buffett was to plow a bunch of money into it you would see prices go up quickly and i think that's bound to happen at some point that some big player is going to get into the bitcoin crypt or, or cryptocurrency game i think they would probably play it more like i'm talking about you know investing in the cryptocurrency market as a whole and you, know, you shouldn't be big about investing in assets that don't produce cash flow. But if you're looking as, at it as an alternative to currency, then I think it's it's great. So I think if instead of, if you want to have $50,000 allocated to to cash, so whether it's you know U.S. dollars or some basket of currency, if you want to, if you allocate some of that to cryptocurrencies, I think it's a smart move. Just like I think allocating some of that to Gold, I've talked about that before, is smart too. So you're not exposed too much to central bank activity and to, uh, you know, if you're holding the dollar to the to the Fed specifically. But back to the, the run-up in Bitcoin price specifically, because that's really why I started talking about this. If you, if you look at what has happened to the price this year, you have to think that it's in line for a correction at some point here. So it's been, it was hovering for most of the last 12 months between you know five and seven hundred dollars a coin and then we've seen this dramatic run-up over the last month and a half or so so if you go it was at about 900 in late march a little over 900 and now we are at over 2500 so it's been almost a three-fold increase in in two months so if you're looking to make quick money off of Bitcoin, which is not, that's not typically, you know, how I look at investing in things. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look more at the long term, not trying to make a quick buck, but this is not the time to be investing in Bitcoin. And there, there seems to be a lot of, uh, a lot of bubble psychology going on here where people see a run up in prices and everybody knows that you should buy low and sell high. But what most people do is buy high and sell low. You know, they, they panic if the market falls. It exacerbates that fall as people are selling off and they don't buy when it's low because, you know, you look at what happened after the stock market crash, after the Great Recession, and lots of people were holding a bunch in cash and short-term bonds and, and things like that that were yielding nothing or very little, and then they missed out on the best returns that they could have gotten because they didn't trust the markets at that point. But that really is the time when you want to buy the most. So I think a lot of people are coming into Bitcoin because they, you know, they see this run up in prices, but this is what happens in a lot of bubbles. And it's not directly analogous to an equity bubble. But I mean, I think there's 
I think a lot of the same things are going on here with Bitcoin. But I just want to reiterate my point that just because Bitcoin is the biggest and the most popular right now does not mean that it will stay the biggest or most popular. You know, all it takes is for one coin to overtake Bitcoin and all of a sudden Bitcoin is not, you know, maybe not valueless, but certainly not at the at the values we're seeing today. So I'm bullish on the cryptocurrency market as a whole, not nearly as bullish on Bitcoin specifically, because I think you're, you are taking a big risk there that another coin will overtake it or another, you know, another cryptocurrency will overtake it as the big dog. And you see it with a lot of industries, you know, with a lot of companies, these industries have popped up. A lot of times it's not the first entrant that ends up being the most successful. It might be the second or third or fourth where things are perfected and, you know, they figure out a way to, to beat the original. I talked about Silk Road before that ended up getting shut down and there were a lot of flaws that led to it being traceable to Ulbricht. Uh, so the, you know, the first entrant in that market, they established the market and they ended up not surviving due to being shut down. You know, they didn't go bankrupt or anything. But I think if, if Silk Road had been allowed to continue, that would have happened naturally. Another entrant would have come in and would have become the big dog in that industry because they would have learned from the mistakes that, that, that the first entrant made and it's happened time and time again. A lot of internet companies have been the same way. And I'm not saying that that definitely will happen with Bitcoin, that it will be overtaken, but I think the risk is larger than most people realize. And history is, has proven that true in so many other industries. So uh, cryptocurrencies, very interesting topic. I'm going to post some resources if you want to learn more about it. You know, I, don't, I assume, assume that my audience has at least heard of Bitcoin um, but you can read details. I'll, I'll post the original white paper as to how it actually works from the creator. Um, some resources on the on the blockchain technology, which is where the digital ledger of transactions are, and it's it's really interesting and fascinating, I think. And I think there is there are going to be a lot of uses that pop up for this. People are already using it for a lot of these reasons. You know, you can conduct business with anybody in the world and not have to worry about. Uh, converting currencies or anything like that. Um, it's it's much more anonymous um, if you don't want to be traced for whatever reason. Um, it's a way to not have to go through the traditional banking system if you're distrustful of the, of the traditional banking system. So, you know, all these things work together to, to produce an, an environment that's very conducive, I think, to cryptocurrencies continuing to develop. And as more of our lives, more and more of our lives, and it's, it's hard to imagine this, that they're only going to get more attached to our phones and our computers, but it, it's going to happen. They're, they're going to continue to be more and more intertwined. And I think cryptocurrencies will, um, will, only, will only become more popular as that development happens. So I think that's everything I want to say. If you, if you want to learn more about it, I'll have those resources out there. Very fascinating topic. Um, and I think it intertwined well with, with discussing Silk Road because Bitcoin was what was used and that was part of Ulbricht's ultimate idea to combine Tor with Bitcoin to really have this anonymous market out there. So thank you for listening. I'm hoping to have another one. I'm, I may do another one today, possibly if um, just because I haven't done one in so long, but certainly I'll have another one out early this week. Still a ton to talk about a lot of topics in the news right now. So thank you for sticking with me and I will talk to you again soon.